Hello everyone, this is Jacqueline Lowe at Grace That Rains. Welcome to the Electric Eel Series. We created our summer series of podcasts to give you a spiritual jolt out of your everyday life to help you to focus on the wonder of God and the wonder of the moment during these very trying times. Sometimes, wonder needs a jolt. Today we have a new guest. Let me introduce you to Jack Ong. Jack was the ex-chief operating officer at GTNet. It was a Vancouver-based company with deep expertise in web technology. Presently, he's the Director of Strategic Technology at the Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver. I would have never imagined that Jack would work at the Catholic Archdiocese of Vancouver. Come, listen to his story. It's an amazing story of conversion. So pull up a chair, grab a cup of tea, and stay with us for the next 40 minutes. Well, hello, Jack. Thank you for joining us on our show. Thank you for having me, Jacqueline. So, Jack, can you tell me a little bit more about your past, where you came from, uh, what your faith life was, what your family life was like? Sure. Yeah, I grew up in Singapore in a kind of nominally Taoist Buddhist background. Mm-hmm. Um, so, generally, far, very, very far from from faith in the Christian sense. Right. We visited the temples, the mon- the, the monasteries. Um, all our ancestors were cremated and interred in these mausoleums that were tended by the monks. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that was a big part of our lives growing up. And I loved I loved how reverend things were, and I loved how incense was used liberally. Uh, that was uh, one little connection I made when, when we first uh, attended High Mass in, in the Catholic Church. It was a cultural affiliation, for sure. Yes, that's a very good insight. What was life like in Singapore? Life was, you know, for somebody who grew up there, life seemed very stable, very kind of rigid. There mm-hmm. was a certain template of what they expected you to be. Mm-hmm. Singapore being a country with no natural resources, it definitely relied on mercantile kind of industrialism mm-hmm. enterprise to be able to make it. So, yeah, school was always directed towards business and making money and just making something of yourself from nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, general Singaporean way of looking at life is relatively material. Right. So what you're saying then is in Singapore, you couldn't just be an artist, but you had to be materially successful. To be a, a programmer, a, a lawyer, a doctor, of course, was much more preferable than trying to make a living as an artist of any kind. Mm-hmm. And so you lived that life for your childhood years, but then your parents decided that they wanted to move. Sure, yeah. My, you know, thankfully, my dad had a had a really good job in the telecom industry, and he he traveled around the world a bit, and so 
he got to experience life outside of Singapore, and he was enlightened enough to realize just how oppressive the regime is in Singapore and, and life is. Mm-hmm. So, at the same time that he was doing that, my mother happened to work for the Canadian High Commission in Singapore. So mm-hmm. they decided that you know it would be it's time to move. It's not conducive to raising a, a good family, and so they started looking around the world for different places to potentially migrate to, and mm-hmm. landed on Vancouver as a good option. Part of the issue was. Um, you know, the, the conscription. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, at 18 years of age, you have to go into the, the army basically for two and a half years. Yes, I think and, our viewers yeah. don't know this, but in Singapore they do. It's mandatory in Singapore. Yes, yes, for any able-bodied person, I think. Okay. Yeah, we moved straight to Vancouver. The... in. Mar- March 12, 1988. So, Jack, you and your family immigrated to Canada, and then you attended high school, and then went on to university. What was your big dream, your goal and ambition in this new country? Well, initially I was, you know, I had this dream. I wanted to go to the London School of Economics, graduate with honors, mm-hmm. and come back to Canada and become the chief economist for the Bank of Canada mm-hmm. so that I could tell the <laughs> so that I could tell the Prime Minister of Canada what to do with his economic policies. And so I had this grand plan that unfortunately went off the rails. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I never did get to the London School of Economics and unfortunately had to alter things because of a, a bad fail, failed grade in one of my honors calculus classes that I was totally distracted in. But you were still living the dream of a new immigrant, and you were interested in economic success. And so you continued to work really hard to attain it, right? Well, yeah. I mean, in pursuit of said wealth, I don't know what what that really means, really. But Mm -hmm. I I, I heard some people, I heard some very wise people uh, separate financial success from success, period. So, right. I'd rather succeed in life than, than on the financial, but um, both is good too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I was, yeah, I was very driven. I had always been driven, and so mm-hmm. I started my first company when I was 23, mm-hmm. fresh out of university. And thankfully, mm-hmm. my dad was uh, supportive of it and helped me start this new venture. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I was 23 years old at the time. I didn't know anything. That's very uh, young. But I was I was driven. I worked, you know, 18 hours a day, and I managed to sell the company when I was 25, and then came back to Vancouver. sold it up to a company out in Ontario. Right. I was going to mention that. Went out there that. for 10 months mm-hmm. to try and integrate my company with theirs. Mm-hmm. We both had kind of nationwide operations, and in some parts of Canada, actually, we were competing with each other, and so. There was a need for for my team and for their team to be integrated, so I, I did that. Okay. And then I moved back to Vancouver, and we opened up uh, the Vancouver one of the Vancouver franchises of Death by Chocolate. When you were younger, going through school, just to step back a little bit, you told me that you even sold cars. Uh, selling cars was a great thing, and 
it really kind of took me out of my shell. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't speak to people, you don't make any, you don't make any money. So Mm -hmm. it was a, it was a real, yeah, it was a real game changer for me. So Jack, maybe you were exposed to so many types of employment opportunities so that perhaps you could learn the necessary skills to evangelize your faith. Don't you think? (laughs) I don't know about evangelization, but it was definitely a seed for me being able to, I guess, be comfortable speaking to people mm-hmm. and asking them for money. Oh, I yes. think that was, that was the first time that I'd ever had to, <laughs> you know, close a deal. And, right. and yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's been, yeah, actually, I'm thankful for this opportunity to kind of retrace those steps because it, it brings up, you know, the, the skills that I banked on today and mm-hmm. reminds me of where they originated. Yeah, you know, life is all integrated and, you know, the Lord knows our journey and we'll get back to that. But it's so nice to hear your story. I haven't heard it also. I've known you for so long. So now, Jack, we've just described your growing up years. We've described your goals, your big moves and your work ethic and your worldly perspective. But now you're in your 30s, you've just met and married Pollyanna Cher. From this moment on, your life starts to change, and I can't wait to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, Pollyanna, uh, cradle Catholic, born in Hong Kong. We met here in Vancouver at a wedding. She was the bride, well, she was one of the bridesmaids, and I was the MC for the wedding. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we met. Uh, on our first date, she told me that she was discerning the, the religious life, and I thought, "Well, oh, this is going well." <laughs> and, um, so, you know, when when we did get married, I was I was really quite far from the church, but you know, she lived a life of witness, and one of the amazing things that she did during the time that we were dating was uh, prison ministry, and and. Out of prison ministry came her one-on-one time with the women at Sweet Takum, a, a women's halfway house, drug mm-hmm. and alcohol uh, addictions. Right. And mm-hmm. she was she was doing the things that I thought people ought to do with their lives, which is you know giving back to to people who are less fortunate and and really you know, her individual journeys with the women going through addiction um, recovery was very inspiring to me. She brought me to one of these uh, first-year cakes. So every time, every anniversary of sobriety, you know, any, well, for me, any excuse to have cake, but, <laughs> you know, the first year of sobriety and second year, those are, those are big cakes. And okay. so mm-hmm. I went to one of these celebrations and, this young lady who was 16 years old stood up and told her story. She had been trafficked basically from Nova Scotia all the way to Vancouver, mm-hmm. kind of going through successive pimps and selling her body for drugs after she had been addicted. And oh, that's awful. Yeah. So that, that story really touched me. And so I, I thought, you know, I want to help in this, in this um, great cause. I can't journey with the women. That's not possible for me as a man. But uh, I can help on the board side. I can help with the fundraising side. I can help with the governance side of things. So, 
so I did that. I did that for probably five or six years. And um, mm. but when I was working on the board, my my main function actually became the fundraising side. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we did a lot of that that work on the the kind of faithful day in my faith journey happened actually in the course of that work. Um, one of the things that we made a good chunk of money on was a, a concert. We we would hire the barbershop singers and mm-hmm. like the gentlemen of fortune, they called themselves, and uh, they were excellent. They still are, I'm sure, out there somewhere. I haven't seen them for a few years. But okay. uh, mm-hmm. the, the gentlemen of fortune would come and they staged this concert at St. Mary's and we filled the place, you know, it can take 800, 900 people. Mm-hmm. And it was a good fundraiser for us. And so that one year, 2009, we're working on that fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And I had invited all my friends and family, like everybody was coming. And, uh, and unfortunately, on the way on the way to St. Mary's, uh, we were heading east and we ran into an elderly couple crossing the road so that was that was my Mm -hmm. (laughs) that was my big turn for our listeners jack can you please explain a little bit more about what you meant by you ran into this couple on the road yeah sure yeah we were were leaving to go to to saint mary's in order to i guess host the evening Mm -hmm. and it was it was a dark rainy evening it was november and uh, we were heading along the road, and this elderly couple kind of dashed across the street trying to get to their car, and, and we, we we got got into this bad accident. We we mm. hit them dead on. Um, mm. The elderly, the gentleman died on the scene, and the the lady she she spent eight months in the hospital re- rehabilitating. After the accident, I, I got out of the car. My mm-hmm. wife stayed in the car for a while. Right. But I got out of the car and walked over to where he was lying on the ground. And yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's something kind of, mm-hmm. you know, being there on the scene when, when, when somebody is expiring and mm-hmm. you having been a part of that process, like why he was there. Wow, Jack, that's tragic. And I can't imagine what was going through your heads. But on the other hand, you also told me that it was the first time you actually ever prayed. Can you tell us more about what happened next? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I, I, I stood there, I knelt there for a while, and then my wife came out of the car, you know, so several people had gathered around by then, and they were calling 911. And, mm-hmm. um, and then when my wife came out to see me, mm-hmm. uh, I immediately asked her. I I I, I asked if, if we could pray for for the couple, mm-hmm. and and that was the first time. And so this was, uh, you know, after after me going to church. Well, Sundays used to be G day for for my wife and I. So G for her, for God, and me, the little G for golf. Oh, so, <laughs> okay. You know, I would go to church with her. Um, I would sit in the pews. I got to know the responses, so I would say some of the responses. There 
feet that I wouldn't say just because I didn't believe mm-hmm. yet. So, but that that night after immediately after the accident, I I asked my wife if if she would pray with me, mm-hmm. and so yeah, that was the first time I I prayed to God. You know, time stood still, and you can ne- you will never forget because it it really was sort of a turning point for you, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, we went through the whole system, the the police, the the insurance company, the courts, and, you know, throughout it all, they said it wasn't my fault, but I mean, that that was no comfort, Mm -hmm. really, Mm -hmm. and, but I, yeah, I, I, the only place I felt comfortable was, was in Christ. What did that mean for you? When I was at when I went to church to to kneel and in, in prayer and, and ask for I don't know what you would say wisdom discernment mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. peace peace yes that's yeah that's where I that's where I got it and and then you praying over me was was another really important piece of my recovery but I mean it took three years to go through all the the the, the, the kind of fallout process, just the legal process. Mm-hmm. On the emotional process, I'm still going through all of that. But it, yeah, it was a it was a real turning point because I think, in my mind anyway, it tore down all the the walls of pride that I had put up mm-hmm. over my many years. Right, <laughs> right, definitely. And um, as I guess, as someone yeah. who was so successful without having relied on the Lord, there were many walls to be taken down, weren't there? Yeah, you know, <laughs> financial success and, you know, some nice words of affirmation from pe- from other people and all of a sudden, you know, why do you need God? And not having grown up in that, in that world of thanksgiving, mm-hmm. uh, I think that's the biggest lesson, actually. But right. you know, it, you you really do feel self-reliant, and mm-hmm. and that's a dangerous place to be. I know that you and Pollyanna prayed a lot during that time. You prayed for peace, and you prayed for healing for all of you. Was there any one time that you felt that your Christian friends were pressuring you to enter the Catholic Church? No, it's just, it. I, I didn't feel any pressure. And the initial introductions that she made mm-hmm. to me were Father Vincent Travers, Father Pierre LeBlanc, Sister Catherine Nickerson. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and none of these, and none of these religious ever gave me any pressure. In fact, they, they just invited me into their lives and into their homes. So what you're saying is they led by example. Yeah. So I want to ask here, Jack, what happened after the accident? After the accident, I just became much more open to, well, I was initially just awakened from my torpor, I guess you might want to say. I was just in such a place of, you know, I'm doing so well, I don't need, I think all Christians, all Catholics are 
using their faith as a crutch because they can't get through life. Like all that, you know, all that stuff kind of just mm-hmm. dropped away from me because very quickly I became mm-hmm. some, I, you know, I became that person that I thought Catholics were. Mm-hmm. And I needed, I needed a crutch big time. I needed, I needed a huge, you know, blanket to cover myself with. And mm-hmm. Actually, that was, that was an interesting aside because some people did, give me blankets, purple blankets, and there was special significance around that, but uh, mm-hmm. I did not appreciate that until until that time. And mm-hmm. so that was nice. But, yeah, after, after the accident, I became much more open. I became a lot less kind of fenced. Mm-hmm. And the Word of God started to make sense. And mm-hmm. the, the various readings and... The way that people live a religious life started to make sense. And so I started investigating the faith and mm-hmm. I started volunteering and all sorts of crazy things in, in the Archdiocese of Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was testing, in my mind anyway, the people who profess faith. And, you know, there were many who really impacted me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, throughout that time when I was kind of poking at people who professed a deep faith, mm-hmm. uh, you know, many, many were truly, uh, how do we say, their, their, their faith was truly foundational. It really, it really impacted every part of their lives. And, mm-hmm. and that, that true witness was, very important and very impactful. Hmm. And as the person who you are, Jack, I'm not surprised you went straight to the archdiocese. I <laughs> did just some so... work at the at the parish at St. Mary's Parish, where where I first was introduced to to Father Pierre, Father Vincent. But uh, you know, the my background being what it is in tech, it it only made sense to to kind of volunteer my services. On the diocesan level, right. So without the pressure, then it was just easy for you to observe, right? Yeah, and for a while there, it was kind of cool. I, I was the only non-Catholic in the room for many of the meetings, and there were always questions from people about, "What are you doing here?" And I don't. I quite enjoyed those, and uh, <laughs> so and it was almost like a call to to say, hey, you know, I'm watching, and a lot of other people in my position, a lot of people who are questioning the faith, who are seeking truth, beauty, and goodness, they're looking at you. So mm-hmm. you have to be better. And so that was like, that was my call to, to them to, to really, <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. But, You're pushing uh, it. <laughs> sorry? You're pushing it. Mm. Yeah, I enjoy challenging situations. <laughs> it's fun, challenging people. Definitely. So you didn't look back at your life. You were always looking forward. But how did you deal with the difficult thoughts and feelings then that came to your mind? Well, there were lots of thoughts of escapism. There was, I mean, we live in, we live in downtown Vancouver, so... 
there are lots of ways to distract yourself from your pain. Mm-hmm. Everything from pills to worse. Um, uh, also, at the time, I lived on the 19th floor of an apartment building, and you know, looking downwards, uh, considering taking flight was always an option in terms of getting out of the pain of the present moment. Mm-hmm. But yeah, thankfully, the thankfully, I don't know, the the call to persevere and and fight through it was stronger. So mm-hmm. that's why I'm talking to you today. Thanks, Jack, for being so honest to tell the story. It must have been a hard time for you. But then there's always hope, and we knew that the Lord was changing you, and most of all, changing your heart. In fact, I remember one day we were talking to you on the phone, Bishop and I, and you told us that you had just visited a Trappist monastery. Can you tell us what happened there? About eight and a half years after the accident, I, I got a, an invitation to go hang out with three guys that I'm very, that I have a lot of respect for, mm-hmm. um, Chris, Aiden, and Kevin. Mm-hmm. And they initially invited me to a weekend uh, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start in Cannon Beach and, you know, just kind of have some great food and camaraderie and and just be away as, as four guys for a weekend, and I was super enthused by it. Mm-hmm. And then slowly, so I accepted the invitation, and then slowly it emerged that actually what they were planning was a weekend of silence in a <laughs> Trappist monastery. Which they didn't and tell you. So, yeah, sorry? Which they didn't tell you. They didn't tell me about that initially, and then it just kind of came out and... Um, and then it just kept trickling out. Oh yeah, we're going to be in silence and oh yeah, there's no meat in the diet. And oh yeah, well, anyway, it just, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy, if I tell you that we're going to have coffee, we're actually going to have coffee. So since I told the guys that we're, I'm going on this weekend, I wasn't going to back out. So, so we went, we went down to Our Lady of Guadalupe. It's a beautiful place in Lafayette, Oregon, just outside of Portland. Right. 1,300 acres. You could walk all day and never see another soul. Mm. And so we went down on a Friday in April, and it was gorgeous. It was just absolutely amazing. Mm. We did have a little side trip to Cannon Beach where we ran around on the beach and threw a frisbee in 50-mile-an-hour winds, which was kind of fun. But that was... That was... uh, yeah, so during that time at the monastery, you know, we arrive on a Friday and you enter into silence right away, but that's okay, that's fine, your body can handle it, your mind can handle it, because mm-hmm. it's just slowing down, but then on the Saturday, on the second day, I I got into this crazy state of desolation, slash anxiety, slash listening too much to yourself, mm-hmm. and I was really in somewhat bad shape, actually, by Saturday afternoon. And mm-hmm. Be- prior to this, you hadn't th- taken any silent time for yourself. Is that correct? No. Oh, okay. Yeah, but, I mean, silence is is crazy, right? It's mm-hmm. it's so out there, mm-hmm. and so no, I never 
yeah, before that weekend, I had never spent any time in silence. Mm-hmm. Even my my dreams are animated significantly. I don't I don't have time to myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was a really alien place to be in a really alien state to be in. Mm-hmm. And so Saturday evening vespers, we go into the chapel and the monks are chanting and. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. The sunlight streaming in. The trees are rustling. Like oh, it was, it was beautiful. And then, it was then. It was there. It was eight and a half years after the accident. I spent all this time kind of investigating the people who profess faith, mm-hmm. and I finally kind of got the the message very clearly that baptism is the is the next step. And mm-hmm. and somehow yeah, the inspiration was there to pick that the date of the accident as my baptism date mm-hmm. so now instead of talking about november 28th as the accident as the day date of the accident november 28th is now my baptism date yeah how did it yeah, feel it was <laughs> <laughs> it was the weirdest thing <laughs> to me at the time yeah now i'm craving the next time it happens but mm-hmm. you know I'm sure you shared this with the boys that brought you down there, and I'm sure they must have been really elated. Yeah, they were they were very excited for, for what had happened. And when we came back to Vancouver, it was just a matter of you know, getting things in place. And wow. Bishop Gary agreed to be the main celebrant. Bishop Gary's been a big part of my faith journey as well, okay. traveling around the north when he was the Bishop of Whitehorse. Right. Bishop Gary um, is in Victoria now? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now he's the Bishop of Victoria, mm-hmm. it's, you know, but it's been, yeah, that was that was a great evening, my baptism for me. I was going to say, there were so many people there witnessing this great event, because I think we all looked at it and knew that this was this um, tremendous grace that you received, and you look so happy, Jack. I was, I was in, uh, I, was, I, I think I was elevating. Mm-hmm. Um People are very kind. They're, they they took time out of their day and, and came out to, to celebrate the fact that I was being received into the church. And for mm-hmm. that, I'm very thankful. So you see, friends, Jack's life changed in such a dramatic way because God loves him so much. And even if it took this accident to change him, God knew his path. Keep listening because Jack's journey with Christ just keeps getting better and better. Well, I've been baptized for... A year and a half, and I've been the first night at St. Anthony Pada. We're probably going on four years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that was the, that was a cool thing. After my baptism, I was no longer content to sit in the pews at Mass. So I approached Father Justin and I said, Hey, I want to be an altar server. These guys who are, you know, gliding around the, the altar uh, doing things at Mass. They, they seem to be you know, really into their faith and they really understand the significance of what's happening at Mass. And mm-hmm. I want a piece of that. So <laughs> I said, you know, Father, I know I'm like 40, well, 30-some years older than some of these altar servers, but can I be an altar server? And mm-hmm. he said, yeah. So so I got I got my <laughs> old Catholic and I got a surplus. And, and then the, the, the young guys have been tremendously... Uh, they've been tremendously helpful 
in in teaching an old dog new tricks and um i've i've been loving being able to serve at mass uh it's been it's been quite the uh steep learning curve mm-hmm. but wow I, yeah i love it <laughs> it's like almost the pinnacle you're there you get to be uh, so close to the to the holy eucharist um yeah it's just yeah. uplifting it's like you wouldn't have thought about this 20 years ago. What do your parents think of this? You know, my parents are fantastic in the sense they, they've always been super open. You know, when I told them I'm going to be Catholic, there was, it was not, never anything, but yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you, you know, I'm glad you found that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they do come once in a while to, to church with me, but typically only for more special events, like uh, when we renewed our wedding vows, for example. But my whole family was there at my mm-hmm. baptism, and uh, I don't know how to do the next thing of evangelization with them. I have a friend who started Family Alpha with their with their little immediate group, and that could be something that I bring up with my family. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty scary thought but Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's where God's leading us one of those people that I had mentioned earlier who kind of questioned my wife and her decision to marry a non-Catholic he he took it upon himself to invite me to an alpha series Mm -hmm. all going on 12 years now 12 years ago Mm -hmm. and back then it was just Nikki Gumbel on the screen talking to you Mm -hmm. and the guy was strangely compelling the guy (laughs) could sit there for hours and hours just listening to him talk could you explain but, a little bit to our friends and explain what Alpha is? Maybe give us a sentence or two? Yeah, sure. So Alpha, Alpha is a, a program designed as an introduction to Christianity. Um, back, it's 12 weeks. Uh, usually you meet for a meal and a video, and then you get into a small group for discussion afterwards. Mm-hmm. It's been a very successful program. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. being run out of Holy Trinity Brompton uh, in England and you know when I first went through Alpha I, I, I told Bishop Gary this is this is this is like Christianity light I don't want the meat and potatoes of Catholicism <laughs> but you know since then Alpha's Alpha's very different today than it was 12 years ago mm-hmm. and we are now in our ninth season of Alpha at St. Anthony's and this is our first season of course uh, fully online mm-hmm. uh, so there isn't even the temptation of good food to, to get people to come in the door to talk about to talk about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a learning experience this season at St. Anthony's. But yeah, this is uh, well, my my ninth season as a as part of the Alpha team. And mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, initially I was exposed to Alpha more than twelve years ago. <laughs> That's a long a great time. Journey. Yes. Jack, this has been a wonderful time, just sitting with you and learning about your story all over again. I've learned great things about you now, and I wondered if you had any advice to offer. Yeah, my, my most fervent prayer for people who are seeking the faith is for them to not have to go through the, any kind of trauma in order to tear down the walls of, I guess, protection slash uh, rationalism Mm -hmm. Um, you know uh, yeah there's no uh, was it G.K. Chesterton who said 
there is no faith there's no understanding without faith mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. there if you really you know you can try and try and try to understand certain passages in the bible certain things that jesus said but if you're just looking at them from you know kind of uh, we we as humans we as simple humans we uh, we can't we don't understand it's mm-hmm. and you know as much as i thought that i had a certain mental capacity until i let go of those hard-headed you know uh, objections mm-hmm. there was there was no there was no reconciliation and there was no coming to there was no coming to faith from my position from where i was back then mm-hmm. and unfortunately for me it, it took a, a jolt it took a, a crazy event that you know, and my wife said this previously is that I, I am a good driver and I take a lot of pride in being a good driver and you know looking ahead and making sure that you know I, I, I think a couple of steps ahead and be proactive about things but that accident entirely tore me apart because I took so much pride in in that particular skill so mm-hmm. you know if you're an engineer or if you're a doctor or if you're you know somebody who who trades on their intelligence and and abilities to make a living and to you know make their mark in the world it's really hard to get off of that position and be humble enough and then have the the ability to to trust in the lord I feel that you're more connected to your heart you're connected more to your emotions and I think that's what the holy spirit does with us and um oh thank you i'm not sure <laughs> but you know i try we we all we, we do absolutely what we can to invite jesus into our lives how would you like to continue to serve the lord if i can provide some new directions on new ways of looking at things because of my experience then mm-hmm. i think that would be that would be a really good use of my time. I think your, you know, your life and Bishop Gilmore's life is, would be would be very good um, examples to model one's own prayer life on. But for me, it's it's a matter of recentering. Mm-hmm. I find myself very very quickly going back to the old ways of judgment and mm-hmm. measurement. Mm-hmm. Those are the temptations uh, that will always yeah. be there. But, um, you know, with your newfound family, you know that you'll be receiving much more than just a pat in the back. The prayer is going to be so powerful for you from now on. So, and in yeah. intercessory prayer. So it's wonderful. Any last yeah. word, Jack? No, I, I mean, you know, for everyone who is, who, who is listening, who's taking the time to listen to this, I think, prayers for everybody uh, I hope you pray for us all and um, yeah it's uh, a beautiful life and it's uh, a beautiful faith and may we be able to tell more about it 
Well, Jack, Bishop Gilmore and I can't wait to follow you into the future. There's so much ahead of you. And we want to thank you again for being honest and being open about the experience you went through and mostly for assuring our visitors and our listeners and letting them believe that God truly has our back. Thank you so much. This is Jacqueline Lowe at Grace That Reigns. And this is the Electric Yale series. We hope you join us next week. We are at www.gracethatreigns.com. If you've liked what you've heard, please share our commitment to renewing your wonder.